0: I'd like to begin this morning by reading our text, Luke chapter 12 verses 35 through 48. Luke chapter 12 verses 45, 35, sorry, through 48. <clears throat> Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming... He would not have left his house he be broken into. You also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating but the one who does not know and did what was deserving a beating will receive a light beating everyone to whom much is given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more What ought our attitude mentally, what ought our conduct be as we wait for the Lord's return? Jesus, if you remember, began chapter 12 teaching his disciples, but he's teaching his disciples in the presence of vast multitudes back in 12 Verse 1, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say first to his disciples. And he speaks. So that's the context. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, a group of at least 70 or more, in the presence of thousands upon thousands. And the implication is he's teaching them first, but he intends for what he says to them to ripple out. And this... This teaching is sparked by the escalation of conflict with the Pharisees. You remember chapter 11 ended with him going to a dinner party to Pharisees and him pronouncing woe after woe after woe, judgment and damnation against the Pharisees and the lawyers. And so as we looked through this sermon of Jesus, this teaching, we saw in, the, in verses 4 through 12 the necessity of being prepared to suffer. One of the consequences of, of Jesus' escalating hostility with the Pharisees is that they will try to kill him. They're, they're hunting him. And what Jesus makes clear is, as goes the master, as goes the disciple. If this is how they will treat Jesus, we must expect them to treat us this way. And he warns his disciples, and he warns us that if we are unwilling to suffer for him, in fact, probably most clearly, in verse 8 of chapter 12, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is critical material. When we die... All of us will. We'll face the living God. And the only question that matters is, will we have an advocate there in that moment who will confess us as his own, his sheep, his ransomed, his children? And Jesus makes it clear that if if we are those who do not confess him, and this is not an issue of a one-time event. Peter did deny Jesus one time, but ultimately went on to be a confessor, somebody who suffered for Jesus. Jesus will reciprocate, he will respond in kind to our life's confession of Christ or our life's denial of Christ. And then, sparked by this, a voice from the crowd, seemingly at random, calls upon Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance. There's always somebody in the audience thinking, man, I... That's a good message for them to hear. And this guy's probably thinking something like, I I hope my brother is paying attention. Are you listening to that, brother? And so Jesus then pivots on that to a second great warning. So the first warning for his disciples is the danger of falling away, being unprepared for suffering, being unprepared to persevere and to confess. The second great danger facing his disciples, he warns them, take care again. That's how he introduced in verse one, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. First great warning for his disciples. Verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And we went through two weeks on money, didn't we? We looked at the rich fool, far more than he needs from the produce or the ground, and yet all he can see, the purpose of his goods for is that they exist for his joy and for his enjoyment and for his security. And he builds a bigger barn, and he says to his Soul, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And yet in light of the resurrection, in light of judgment, God calls him a fool. The things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The danger is that the money and the possessions of this world will blind us. They will grab our hearts. They'll be all that we think about. They'll be all that we live for. They will be our security and our salvation. When we have them, we feel secure. When we are without them, we feel threatened. And Jesus gives us a different direction to go to. He he tells them in verse 32, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We, we, We have an inheritance. We are rich beyond measure in Christ. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourself money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where your thief approaches not and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus promises us that if we will seek his kingdom, we will seek first... God's will for our life, those things that matter there. The Lord who cares for the grass will care for us. The Lord who cares for ravens and sparrows will care for us. The the reason I want to emphasize this is that what we pick up in verse 35 is unbroken speech from Jesus. There is no event that sets up this new teaching. This is the next thought in his argument, the the next point in his outline of his sermon that we pick up here. And he will warn them again. And the warning is that we need to be ready for Christ. I titled this morning's message, Ready or Not. You know, the children's game of hide and seek. Ready or not, here I come. Jesus makes it clear, ready or not, he's going to come. And whether we are ready or not has radical, drastic consequences. He teaches this using three parables, three examples. And he'll put forward the carrot and the stick. We see beatitudes, announcements of blessing in verse 37. Blessed are those servants, verse 38. Blessed are those servants, verse 43. Blessed is that servant. There is great blessing for those who are ready for the Lord's return. We'll also see there is great woe and destruction for those who are not. Verse 46 the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful there's the stick carrot and stick three announcements of blessing and a vivisection and so we would do well then to, to listen and pay attention this is this is important stuff Stakes are high. So coming on the heels of Jesus' command and exhortation that we be generous, not cling to our possessions, but that we store up treasure in heaven precisely by giving away the treasure of the earth. We'll dive in now to ready or not. Now, each one of these three parables has a a command to it. You see the first one, and, and I've done the outline by trying to track the argument. We're looking at a rather large chunk of text. We're looking at... Um, 13 verses. And so to help track the argument, we'll move piece by piece. So it begins with a command. It's clear. Verse 35: Stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning. So we get the command. He'll give a parable to illustrate what that looks like or why. And then he's going to give a blessing for the one who does what he says. That's the flow of the first, the first parable. The, and the, the essence of the command is this: Stay awake. Stay awake. Where do I get that word awake from? It's in the blessing that occurs twice. Verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds, awake. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them, awake. Blessed are those servants. Now Jesus gives the command this way, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now, stay dressed for action, literally, and the ESV even has a footnote to this effect, means to gird up your loins. So I think that's the way the King James expresses it. And, and it's a Hebrewism. We know um, that the Hebrews would wear an outer cloak or garment, and it was billowy. This was what you'd use actually as your bedding, most likely, when you went to sleep at night and so you've got this this outer garment this cloak on and it's billowy and it's long and it's difficult to move around quickly and it's hard to work in so if you're going to do work if you're going to be ready for action you'll you know you'll hoist it up some you'll tie it off the belt and now you're able to move that's the picture so the first command is that we ourselves be ready to act And the second, keep your lamps burning, is the need to be able to see our environment to act. Those are the two things you need. You you yourself need to be able to move. You yourself need to be freed from constraints, things that might trip you up. And you need to be able to see what's around you. There's actually an old Japanese proverb that a friend of mine told me the military has adopted. And it goes like this. Vision without action is merely a daydream. Action without vision is a nightmare. You, You need both. You can see what needs to be done, but you're you're unable to move, you're gonna trip, your 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 robes are tangling you up, that's futile. But to act and to move without sight and being able to see, so Jesus is telling his disciples both themselves to be ready to act and to be aware of what's going on around them so they can be ready to act, with the ultimate point that they be awake. In fact, that phrase girding up your loins first shows up in Exodus twelve eleven, interestingly. This is the way the Israelites were to eat their Passover meal at the first Passover. Listen to Exodus 12:11. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, literally with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. There's a vivid, vivid picture of what this means. You're ready to move. What, what, what's going on? The Israelites are told the Lord will deliver you this night. This night, the call is going to come for you to leave, and you better be ready when that call is given. And if you'd been a slave all your life, and think about this, how ready would those Israelites be? You've been a slave all your life. Your parents have been slaves all their lives. Your children are slaves. And yet there's going to be a word announcing freedom, and the only command, the only condition is you better be ready. You you better believe those Israelites were ready. had their sandals on they had their loins girded jesus is promising he will return this by the way is really the first extended treatment on jesus teaching in luke about his return and he will come to deliver us from sin and death and suffering and likewise he tells his people that when he comes to deliver them finally and ultimately we need to be ready we need to be ready And then he gives the first parable, the parable of the attentive servants and the master's return. He says this, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants when the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. He comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake. Blessed are those servants. So it's a pretty simple picture. We're introduced to servants. Now, that's a poor translation. These are not servants. The Greek word doulos means slave. And I do think this is one of those examples where the the concept of slave is critical. Servants, at least as we understand them, can quit their position, they can find new employment. Servants generally aren't beaten, certainly not cut into pieces. Th- that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about slaves. Uh, the reason, and I've heard, I've heard um, some of the editors of the ESV talk about why they translate it bond servants, the reason they don't translate it that way is they're afraid we'll import additional concepts from, from America's history of slavery. The Roman slavery was not race-based. Slavery was due to debt, or military conquest, you could buy yourself out of it. It wasn't as though in Rome there was a certain group of people because of their skin color, because of their ethnic background, because of the city they hailed from, were all slaves. But the fundamental notion of a slave that is important is that you are owned and you are not free. You are under the will of another, whether for good or for ill, whether for honor and blessing or beatings and destruction, you are owned. That's critical to get in these parables. Because if you worked a job where the potential was your master would come and cut you in pieces, you would be looking for new employment. Amen? Okay. If, if you like, if that's your thing. <sighs> these are slaves. These are slaves. And the, this is a master. And this is critical because Jesus is also elevating his authority because he will compare himself to this master, the master who will either honor his servants or the master who will beat and destroy them. And you need authority to do that. The picture is that when Jesus returns in his glory, he will either dish out reward or vengeance to those who are his slaves. This also assumes something else. We, we become slaves of Christ when we're converted. This is not a story about how to be saved, rather how to live out your salvation. And so it's important to note at first that as Jesus has already taught his disciples, we become Christ's slaves, we become his, his servants as we turn from our sin in faith and repentance to him. We've been building our life on the love of money. We've been building our life on the fear of man. We've been building our life in the pursuit of pleasure and getting ahead. We've been living as though this world is all that matters. The, the things of this world own and possess our hearts. And Christ comes along and he says, follow me, pick up your cross, deny yourself. Trust in me. I I will save you. I will be your God. I will be your satisfaction for wrath. And we trust in him. and, And he goes to the cross and he bears our sin, removing God's anger at our sin. And only through that faith in him, in this resurrection, can we be saved. But as we become saved, we enter into this relationship where we are his slaves. That's how the apostle Paul most frequently introduces himself in his letters. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. We are owned by the master. That's the picture here. We are owned by the master who has ultimate authority. And that's important to get in this example. So here's the first parable. There's a master who's going to a wedding feast. And I don't think there's a whole lot of implications about the wedding feast. People try to make a big deal of this because the marriage supper and the feast of the Lamb. That takes place after Jesus returns, not before. It's just a picture of an engagement, but it's an engagement that you don't know how long it's going to last. I think that's why Jesus chose wedding feast. How long will the feast last? Who knows? In Jewish culture, sometimes days. The point is this. The master leaves and will return at an uncertain time. It might be soon. It might be later. Who knows? And what he's expecting and what is required of his slaves is that when he returns, they open the door to him, that he doesn't have to knock, that if he is t- thirsty, that they will give him something to drink and refresh him, that they're ready to attend to him upon his return. That, that's the assumption, right? Like um, men who are waiting for their master to come home from the a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And that's the expectation. Now here Jesus will put out the carrot, the blessing. Blessed are those servants whom their master finds awake When he comes. So, what are the alternatives? Your master's gone. Who knows how long the wedding feast will last? Could be late, could even be tomorrow. Catch a cat nap. What happens? The master returns. You're asleep. You don't open the door to him. And here the emphasis is on the positive. Why should I want to be attentive? Why should I want to be ready for when Jesus returns? Because there's a blessing that comes, and it is staggering. In fact, this blessing is listed twice in the same parable, I think, because of how great it is. Verse 37, blessed are those servants who the master finds awake. Verse 38, blessed are those servants. So what exactly then, and, and here the blessed are those slaves whom their master finds awake. Blessed are those slaves who the master finds awake. What's the nature of this blessing? It is jaw-dropping. Now you think about this in any other scenario, um, whether it 's an employer or probably maybe military is probably the closest thing I can think of where people are under the direct authority accountable to they 're not free to come and go as they please you, th- you think about a scenario where where a general goes off to a a, a ball or a wedding and he expects the the uh, the privates who are um, to drive his car and to attend to him to be ready. And he goes and he, he does his thing and he returns and sure enough, the privates are attentive and they open the door. What, 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 what do you think would be the fitting consequence? Well, perhaps the general would commend them. Well done. Perhaps he might even put in a word to give them a slight raise or promotion or some, um, some sort of such thing. Look at what Jesus says will happen here. This is what's staggering. <laughs> Truly I say to you, He will dress himself for service. By the way, it's the same word, same Hebrewism for dressed for action. The master will return home, and rather than taking his leisure, he will gird up his clothes for service. He will hike them up and tie his belt around his waist. Why? He will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. What Jesus is saying is this master, upon finding his servants faithful when he returns, will reverse the roles. He will hike up his clothing, tie his belt around. He will ready himself for service and action. And he will honor them as the masters or as the honored guests of his feast the master will serve them at his feast. Feast, because when you recline at table, this isn't just breakfast or lunch. This is a formal meal. This is the Roman style of eating, where you'd have a pillow under your side and you'd lie on your side. There'd be a U shaped table. You'd be with your head towards it, your feet away from it. This is how the Last Supper was conducted. What this master does upon finding his servants faithfully at work and awake when he returns is he becomes their servant. He honors and serves them. would be like if the general returning, finding his, his, his guard attendant, put them in the position of honor. It, it's, it's staggering. I mean, th- think, think about this. We are amazed that Jesus in John 13 humbled himself and washed the feet of the apostles. Right? If you ever study that, you think, wow, here's the creator of the universe Here is the God of all creation getting toe jam out of these Palestinian peasants' feet. But that's connected with Jesus' humility. That's connected with Jesus emptying himself, making himself nothing. When Jesus returns, he returns in glory. He returns in honor. He returns with a imprint on this thigh that says king of kings and lord of lords. He opens the scroll that is the title deed to the earth. He comes and defeats his enemies. He comes in all of his glory and power. And according to this, this glorified, resurrected, ruling, and triumphant Lord will honor and serve his faithful slaves. That is staggering. Absolutely staggering in Luke 13:29 if you just turn a page over we got another picture at this at this feast verse 29 and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of god and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This, this banquet that Jesus is speaking of is the banquet in the kingdom, which ties in, by the way, with what he just said previously, right? What did he tell his disciples? Don't seek after what you will eat. Don't seek after what you will drink. Don't seek after what you will wear. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, but instead, verse 31 of chapter 12, seek his kingdom. And all these things will be added to you these servants have attained to the kingdom not only have they attained to the kingdom they are the honored guests at the kingdom feast he tells them don't don't pursue money don't pursue money don't pursue money don't let it get a hold of your heart seek god's kingdom here we have people who not only find the kingdom and enter the kingdom but they are served by the resurrected christ their master at the kingdom and the, the the juxtaposition the honor bestowed upon us bestowed upon those faithful awake slaves is staggering it reminds me of a of a story probably not true that i heard it's it's amusing um the pope was on his way to a speaking engagement and uh they got stuck in traffic, and the Pope was encouraging his drivers to speed up, to speed up. They weren't going fast enough to his liking. So he tells them finally to pull over. He gets in the driver's seat and he starts driving. And he's speeding, trying to get to the, the place he's going the whole papal convoy, and he's leading the way. Police officers um, see him speeding. They don't, they see this, this limousine speeding, and they pull the car over. And the cop gets out with his, with his uh, you know little ticket thing, and he walks up and he's ready to prescribe a ticket. He gets up to the window, the window unrolls. He takes one look at the driver and just ashen face walks back to his car. His partner says, why on earth didn't you give that guy a ticket? He says, I don't know who's in that car, but if the Pope's his limousine driver, I don't want to mess with him. <laughs> but that type of, of juxtaposition is what's going on here. At the second coming, the visible, recognized Honored, Lord of creation, the one who's been given the name above all names, the one who's been given the throne above all thrones, will serve his faithful servants that he finds awake when he comes. That that is a pretty big carrot. No wonder the beatitude is mentioned twice. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. So we need to be awake. Ultimately, they're honored, point two here, because they persevered in watchfulness they persevered in watchfulness that's that reference in verse 38 to the second or the third watch it's not sure if this is a Roman idea whether there's three watches or a heap no four watches Roman four watches Hebrew we're not, not sure it doesn't matter it's late that's the point it's late he doesn't come in the first watch he comes in the second or third and they're awake and they're alert And they receive this grand blessing. And so we need, let's, let's take the parable and translate it to us. We need to be awake and alert for Christ's return. How how do we do that? Well, there's a number of ways, I think. One, we encourage each other. That's the language of Hebrews chapter three. Encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage each other day after day while it's still called today. There's a temptation for us to get tired, to lose focus, to get distracted. And we'll miss out on this blessing, this great reward. Let's move then to the second parable. From the parable of the attentive servants and the master's return, we now turn to... Parable of the unprepared homeowner and thief. Now, here the command is be vigilant. Very similar. The the points of these two parables are very similar. One puts it positively, one puts it negatively. Here, you want to be awake because you want this blessing. Here, you want to be vigilant because you don't want to get robbed. Right? 39 and 40. But know this if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here Jesus is identifying, I believe, the key danger for our awakenedness. The danger that, we'll, that we may not be awake. And it's a really simple command here. We see it in verse 40. You also must be ready. You also must be ready. And here, here's, the, here's the logic. Um, if you knew a thief was kinda try to break into your house, would you get distracted? If you knew for certain at 2 o'clock this morning someone will try to break into your house, would you lose track of time on Facebook? Texting somebody? Would you? No. You'd be alert. Why? Because they're gonna take your stuff. They're gonna take your goods. They're gonna take your 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 TV. Think about the zeal and the alarms and the lengths you would go to to make sure you were not distracted if you knew a thief were coming. Jesus says that's, that's what we need to be like in reference to his coming. If the master had known at what hour the thief would be, was coming, he would not have left his house be broken into. You also must be ready. And then he gives a reason. The command, you must be ready. Why? He comes at an unexpected hour. He comes at an unexpected hour. This is the the reason why I'm immediately dismissive of claims of people who think they've figured out the math and Jesus is coming back in 2016, Jesus is coming back in 2017. He seems pretty clear here. We aren't going to expect it. So, I mean... And that's the danger if we think we can expect it, if we think we can see it coming, we aren't going to be this type of alert. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. Keep your finger here, but turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. The Apostle Paul speaks about this to the Thessalonians. We'll pick it up in uh, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's our metaphor, right? While some people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pain has come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, as your lamps are burning. I mean, maybe that Paul has this, this entire discourse in mind. If you are children of light. children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night, but since we are belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So Paul doesn't say we won't be surprised because we'll figure it out, do the math, have our chart and figure it out. The reason we won't be surprised is we're of the day and so we're going to be awake, vigilant, alert, just like we'd be if we knew a thief were breaking into our house. That brings us then to the third parable and the third command. First, we saw that we had the attentive servants, the masters return. the point there, stay awake, Second, the unprepared homeowner and the thief. The command there, be vigilant. Here, we have the four household managers. And we get a crucial detail added. We need to be faithful. See, up until this point, you might mistakenly get the idea that, yes, we're to be alert, but being alert just means sitting without acting. I mean, in in the examples so far, servants waiting for their master's return are probably positioned by a window, and they're sitting, and they're looking out to the path. The man who's waiting for the thief is sitting in silence, ready to act. And we might think that waiting for the Lord just sort of means sitting around doing nothing waiting for him. In fact, if you read through Thessalonians, that's part of the error the apostle Paul is trying to correct. People were being busybodies. They were being gossips. They were being idle. They weren't working. Paul had to say to the Thessalonians, if someone doesn't work, let them not eat. Because they were so ready for Jesus to come, they quit their jobs, and they're just sort of sitting around waiting. Here we see... That is critical and as crucial it is that we're awake, that we're vigilant, we're meant to be doing stuff. So let's read the parable of the four household managers. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, a master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what was deserving a beating will receive a light beating. And everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Now Peter here interrupts. As Jesus has been teaching, he's confused. Master, are you saying this for us only, or are you saying this for everyone? And as we've seen, Jesus has alternated between speaking to the disciples, speaking to the crowd... Jesus doesn't really directly give an answer, does he? In fact, he responds to Peter's question with a question. Not unusual for Jesus. But I think as we read through and we see these four examples of stewards, the blank here is this. I think Jesus is talking to and about everyone. I think this would be similar to his teaching back in chapter 8, let he who has ears to hear, hear." Because what he's going to give is an example of four household managers. This is similar, in fact, to the parable of the uh, sower. Remember the sower? The seed goes out. There's one seed, and it's sown on rocky soil, and it's sown on hard path. It's sown on thorny soil, and it's sown on good soil. And there's four different results, right? So here, four stewards, four different results. There, four four soils, four different results. I think the answer is everyone. So let's, uh, let's take a look at these one by one. We start again with the carrot, a positive example. We start with the faithful and wise manager. Jesus answers Peter's question with another question. Peter says this parable for us all, for us or for all. The Lord said to him, who then is the faithful and wise manager? And what Jesus is saying in essence is this Peter, don't be worried about that. You need to be worried about I, that. Your response thus far to Jesus' teaching should be H- how, how do I get to be in the status of faithful servant? I, I want to be that guy. I want to be honored like that. I don't want to have the thief come in and rob me. I want to be ready. Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will sit over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So what makes this manager? This is another example of Roman slavery. You could be a slave and you'd have high positions. Here's a household manager. The slave, we'll see. But he's a manager. He's been given some form of responsibility over the master's household. And here we're not told where the master went to or why he went, but the master goes away. And the assumption is he wants his servants, he wants his slaves, especially those who are managers, to manage the household. And so here's a a slave, a servant, a manager who is given some stewardship. And the area of stewardship is apparently to dispense the master's funds and goods at the appropriate time to the master's household master's household. So he's been given a bag of gold, presumably, or a stockpile of food, and he is to dish it out as the need arises as is appropriate. In fact, this is in part what links this back to what Jesus said two weeks ago, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Here is a man who the Lord has given a stewardship with more food, resources, and money than he himself needs. His faithfulness is seen as his, in his distributing those goods. He recognizes that they're not his, they're his master's. He recognizes that his master's will is at the appropriate time. He hands them out to the master's household. So what's the blank here? He is found faithfully serving his master's household. He finds he's found faithfully serving his master's household. What's the blessing that comes with this? His master comes back, and this guy has been giving food and drink to the master's servants. And here, the blessing in verse 43, Blessed is that servant whose master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. The reward is greater authority. Greater authority. Tur- turn to Luke 19. A few chapters ahead. In Luke 19, you see a picture of this. You see there is... The degrees of reward in heaven. Degrees of reward in heaven. And in Luke 19, verse 17, He said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. We're talking about his authority in Christ's kingdom on earth. And Jesus here is in this, in this other parable, Luke 19. He is promising that this one who's been faithful with little will in turn be given 10 cities to rule in the kingdom. And so here, back in, back in Luke 12, this manager who's faithful with his section of the household, maybe it was the butlery staff, maybe it was the stables, I don't know. But he was given a stewardship, he's called a steward, He was faithful, and the master came back, and sure enough, here's his servant going about his duties, caring for the household of the master. And he then gets elevated to rule the whole household. So the first great carrot is the Lord will serve and honor us. The second is that in the coming kingdom, we will rule and reign with Christ, promised elsewhere in Scripture. Revelation, the one who overcomes, I will give to rule and reign with me. But we get that that rule and reign will be in differing degrees, as some will rule over ten cities and some over five. But that's the blessing. And Jesus is saying to Peter's question, Peter, the real question is, You want to become this guy. You you want to receive this blessing. You want this type of authority in the kingdom. He's found faithfully serving in his master's household, and he'll be given greater authority as his reward. In stark contrast to the faithful, the wise manager is the rebellious manager. Verse 45 starts with one of those terrible buts. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So here we have a man who is equally likewise a steward over a master's household. And what's his... his mistake he believes he has much time that's the key he thinks he's got time my mastery has been delayed what's the implication this is a man who for all his rebellion and all his wickedness would not act this way if he knew the master was returning this afternoon i'll have time to sober up i'll have time to fix my mistakes right now i'm going to live self-indulgently for me notice the contrast The, the faithful steward is giving out the food and the drink what's this guy doing he's using it all for himself this is where this links back to what he said with the man building silos we are god's stewards and if god has given you and me more than we need the challenge for us is, are we recognizing that let him who has two tunics give to the one who has no tunic, that if God's given me more than I need, perhaps he's done it so that I can help someone who has less than they need. Or, woohoo! I guess God wants me to drive a nicer car. I guess God wants me to live in a bigger house. I guess the Lord wants me to take a bigger vacation. And I'm not saying that there can't be reasons for those things. But this manager looks at the wealth that his master has given him and he is self-indulgent and he uses it on himself. He eats the food gluttonously. He drinks the wine and gets drunk. Doesn't give it up. That's the contrast here and that's the link to what came before. What's the implication? We are not going to be loose with our possessions if we think we've got plenty of time. I'll live for myself now and when I retire then I'll live for the Lord. I'll build big barns now. And later, later, I'll, I'll get my life straight with the Lord. And just as in the parable with the rich fool who thought he had many years and days, this night your life is required of you. We don't know when we'll stand before the Lord. Don't, don't live self-indulgently now, kidding yourself, thinking that later you'll start living as an honest steward. And that's the, the question we have to ask is to evaluate yourself. How are we doing by this standard? Would we look more like the faithful steward who's caring for God's household, who's using the excess the master has given us to steward as it's appropriate at the right time to give out? Or are we saying, Woohoo, hoo this is all for me. Because I want you to notice next what happens to him. And the ESV is too weak here. This is graphic ESV says the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces. Literally he will dismember him, draw and quarter him. So let me use two times in the New Testament, this and the parallel passage in Matthew telling the same parable. This is ultimate violent destruction. You could not have a stronger picture of anger and rejection. And to make it abundantly clear, even after this guy is a pile of arms and legs and a torso, he is then put with the unfaithful. Lest there be any doubt, this one is outside of the camp. This is not one of God's sheep. This is utter rejection, utter discipline. James gives a similar warning in chapter 5, verses 1-3. through Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire, for you have laid up treasure in the last days. There are people who were living in the last days, and rather than being generous, rather than viewing, this is a stewardship that God has given me, and I need to have my eyes open so at the appropriate time I give to people who have need, they're storing it up. (laughs) This is a, a sober warning. This one servant does the exact opposite of his master's will. He is rebellious. And apparently he's kidding himself, thinking that he'll straighten it out before the master returns. Because he's only doing this because he thinks he has time. As wicked and as rebellious as this man is, he would not dare to act this way if he thought the master was returning this afternoon. So... That's then the question we need to examine ourselves. Are there things in our lives we're doing, would you be living differently if you knew for certain Jesus was coming back at 7 o'clock tonight, next week, next month? Or are we living like we got plenty of time? Plenty of time. And later, later I'm going to get right with the Lord. Later, later I'm going to give myself to ministry. Later, later I'm going to do those things He's calling me to do. Not now. First got to take care of me. Then later... I'm going to do that i've heard a lot of people talk to me that way over time i'm focusing on this now but man when i retire when i get to my 50s and 60s i'll be set up i'll be generous i'll be serving well i hope you do i hope you make it that long the rich fool thought he had plenty of time you fool your soul is required of you tonight okay third manager the disobedient manager now it's a little contrast here the second manager is outright rebellious. He's doing the exact opposite of the things the master tells him to do. Here, this, master, this servant, I think, is just lazy. And he's unprepared. He doesn't fulfill his task. But even though he doesn't fulfill his task, he may not do the exact opposite and tear down what he's called to do. Jesus says this, the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act accordingly will receive a severe beating. Now there's some discussion, and, and Pastor Daniel and I are even talking about this week. These last two servants, do they represent people who are judged and go to hell or Christians who are disciplined? And I, and I am persuaded that these are people who go to hell. That just as we've seen there's degrees of reward in heaven, there are degrees of punishment in hell. We already saw Jesus earlier in Luke say it'll be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Why, why do I say that? What characterizes these next two servants is they do not obey. They do not obey. They do not do the master's will. And we've already seen in Luke Jesus make it very clear. Turn back, turn back to Luke 8. This is what sold me. Sorry, Luke 6, not Luke 8. Luke 6. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And again, this is an an argument that only makes sense if you're buying into the slave-master relationship. To call someone Lord, kurios, is to recognize yourself as their slave. And if the fundamental notion of a slave is they are owned and under the will of another, What is the point of calling someone Lord if you don't let that person direct your actions? You're not my slave, Jesus is saying. If you call me Lord, Lord, don't do what I say. And he goes on, for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. He is like a man building his house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when the flood arose against the stream and broke against it, the house could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears does not do them. The servant who knew his master's will and did not do it is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. I do think there are passages in Scripture that speak of of Christians, um, and probably most notably 1 Corinthians 3, the one whose work burns up hay and straw, escapes as though through fire. I don't think that's what's going on here. Here is a servant does not obey the master. This is like the people in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven or the servant who does his master's will. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So, This is a a disobedient manager. He's not in the open, flagrant rebellion of the previous manager, but he knows his master's will, and he just hasn't gotten around to doing it yet. I'll do the chores tomorrow, right? And he's beaten with many stripes. He is condemned. He is unfaithful. He is disobedient. Brings us to the fourth manager, the ignorant manager. The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now, Jesus' authority is such that He demands obedience and ignorance of His law and His will and His rule is no excuse. Maybe maybe sometimes we kid ourselves into thinking that if I don't know stuff, I'm not accountable for stuff. Well, there is some truth to that. We're going to see in a moment the judgment is proportional to knowledge but this is a principle that ties back even to the old testament listen to leviticus 5:17 if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the lord's commandments ought not to be done though he did not know it then realizes his guilt he shall bear his iniquity there is a different sacrifice to offer for sins that are unintentional, but make no mistake, even under the law of Moses, God taught the Israelites, ignorance of my law is no excuse. You will bear your guilt. You need to deal with it. And again, here's a slave who does not know his master's will. Does not obey his master's will. Doesn't do it. Here he's ignorant. He gets less of a beating. But when Jesus returns, when the master returns, he will dish out honor and judgment. And these last three slaves are pictures of judgment. And Jesus closes with this principle. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. By him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. the principle here is that severity of judgment is proportional to one's knowledge. God is only going to judge us for what we know, not for what we don't know, as you read through Romans, you read through the Scripture, even the most ignorant person in the farthest reaches of the world knows about a creator God, knows about a moral law, knows about a coming judgment. We all know these things, and we'll be condemned for what we know. But we, we live in a day and a time now where, <laughs> I mean, the, the people Jesus is speaking to, they didn't have Bibles. Not unless they are rich. How many Bibles do you have? I got a whole shelf of Bibles. I got phones that I can search things up on my on the internet. I got periodicals. I got books. How much has been given to us? How much will be required of us? How distracted have we become by this world? There is so much reward if we can be attentive and the implication of all of this logic is that it will take effort on our part to stay attentive and awake or else we aren't going to be living with our money the way we ought we aren't going to be ready to face persecution the way we ought we will be swept into the siren song of this world lulling us asleep telling us to think about these things later you've got time i've got time plenty of time And yet for those of us who can keep ourselves awake, notice the imagery requires effort. You ever been really tired, almost falling asleep, tired? I I used to be like that in class. I have to get up and stand up in the back because I was falling asleep. Staying awake when you're tired is not easy. But the first thing is you got to know you need to. The second is then you got to take steps to do it. These are are truths we need to remind ourselves of daily. These are truths we need to to meditate on daily. We need to recognize the the pull of this world in our hearts to, to lull us to sleep. Because if we can be faithful and awake, the Lord Jesus, when He returns, will say, well done, my faithful servant, and then He will honor and serve us. And He will give us greater responsibility and greater honor in the kingdom. Or, ultimately, and this is ultimate. If we so spend our time between now and when we face the Lord that we never get around to doing His will, we will prove that we are not His children, and we will be subjects of wrath and judgment. This is, this is heavy stuff, and as we'll see next week, it gets heavier still before it gets lighter. Jesus is not yet done elevating the stakes, drawing the line in the sand. We need to stay awake. We need to be ready because He's coming and we aren't going to expect it and we aren't going to see it. The rewards are great. Threats are great. We need to encourage each other to be doing these things. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. It's one of the reasons we gather together. That's when I to close in prayer. The Lord would give us the grace to be awake, to walk in the light as children of light. Lord oh God, the stakes are so incredibly high. On the one hand, we have Your Word, Your promise that Your glorified Son to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, He will become our servant, honoring us at His feast. That if we can simply be attentive, stay focused, alert, and awake, we'll rule over Your house. And we tremble as we think of, even in all of our hearts, the potential, the propensity to ignore you, to forget, to live self-indulgently like the goods you've given us are for us. And we tremble the judgment of that wicked servant, dismembered and cast out. And Lord, we don't want, we don't want to suffer that fate. We need your grace. We need each other. If we are to be faithful, help us to be alert. Help us to be awake. Help us to be good and faithful and wise stewards of your time and your resources. In Jesus' name, amen.